breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome to a program where you will get the truth. You will get a genuine reflection on the ideas, be it on Islamic reform, counterterrorism, radicalization, and lately on COVID, on government lockdowns. Not afraid to ask the difficult questions, not afraid to posit some areas of conjecture. I don't claim to be the expert or an expert on everything, obviously, but as an American, as an activist, as somebody with just an opinion and who loves my country and loves my patients and my work, my family, I think we are in an era where somehow speech is being shut down. And I think this program is a start to address some of those subjects, some of those areas that uh, often get shut down elsewhere. So thank you for joining me on this journey. And week to week, find the topics of the day to cover with you. Last week, I took a little break. Thank you for giving me some time to do that. Uh, A lot going on in the middle of Ramadan. We have one week left. Today I want to talk to you a little bit about some reflections of reform in Ramadan and then uh, talk a little bit about the weaponization of medical science, academia in medicine. And last, look at the latest on COVID test numbers. How should we be looking at the data there? So, not wasting any more time, let's talk about Ramadan. Ramadan, we are looking at now day 24, 2025, this weekend. And, um, you know, always it's a time of atonement, a time of humility, a, a pensive reflection for Muslims to look within, reestablish that strength of a relationship with God. However, we see our faith. And this time in COVID, there are two things I wanted to talk to you. One is, you know, sort of this uh, psychosocial phenomena that we see among Muslims in Ramadan in which we get a little irritable. You know, we wake up at uh, three in the morning, have a large breakfast with hydration and otherwise it's called suhoor, which is breakfast. It's Typically, it's not translated to breakfast. It's the meal before dawn. Breakfast is in the evening. You break your fast. But anyway, so we have that meal. And then at dawn, which is around 4.15 for us in Arizona, we stop eating and drinking and nothing to eat or drink all day. So early in the morning, other than the sleepiness, caffeine deficiencies, <laughs> we, we do fine. But then towards the end of the day, many Muslims, as, as much as you try your faith to be demonstrative of an exemplary relationship with those around you, it's natural to get a little irritable, to get hangry, as they say. What's different this year is that everybody else around us seems to also have the Ramadan blues, the the fatigue, the hangriness. But theirs is not about Ramadan. Theirs is about COVID, about lockdowns, about government-imposed isolation calling it social distancing, not physical distancing, which is fine, but social distancing. I have to tell you, in my practice, I'm starting to see the the 
manifestations of isolation as I help patients through normal losses, normal grieving, normal processes of aggressive illnesses that they may have. And I can tell you, I'm never going to get used to this this new world where we don't hug our patients. We barely shake their hands. I, I have been shaking some hands, obviously, then washing and doing all the right things for antiseptic technique. But it's a new era where there's a barrier. There's a firewall. There is a a mesh, sort of this fuzzy, you know, you know, the best metaphor I see it is a the old televisions that used to tune in with uh, the, the grainy screen that would come in and out as you try to get the UHF or VHF signal. That seems to be what's happening with every communication. Where is that coming from? Where is the lack of clarity coming from? When you lose the human contact, sometimes sitting next to a patient on an exam table, sitting closer to them, hugging them and simply consoling them and saying nothing is all they need. That's all they need. It's only patients, your friends, your loved ones. This is not just about medicine. It's about human nature. With that gone, patients are tested in a skill set of verbally expressing themselves through facial or verbal communication. Physical is gone. Now we have nonverbal communication that is really tested because it can no longer be physical and must be left at a distance so that awkward silence that's necessary for communication. And it's not awkward, it's normal, it's natural. Now it becomes even more awkward because we used to fill that in with holding a hand, embracing as somebody tells you they lost their mother. And now they can't even go into the hospitals. They have to hear about it over FaceTime, over tele- over telephone. That's unnatural. That is a signal that's hazy, that can barely be seen through the black and white UHF or VHF signal. We try to clear it. We try to express it, but it just doesn't clear. And... That's just unnatural. We're try- I have to tell you, I'm trying my best, but I'm never going to get used to it. And even this is as somebody who, I, I, I love communication. I don't think, as you know, I'm not usually at a loss of words. But sometimes it's just not the right thing to say something. And now we've lost that. And I have to tell you, part of the rebel in me is about avoiding that, is about doing what we used to do. Business as usual. Because business as usual has a lower risk than the higher risk of anxiety, psychiatric illnesses, suicidality, abandonment, depression, lack of care, avoidance of all the other issues. Because even if you want to look at psychiatric illness and depression and anxiety and isolation as one element and all the other healthcare is different, it drives how a patient deals with their heart, how they deal with their lungs, how they deal with their GI system, their cancer screening and other things. And it's a cascade that I am seeing exaggerated. Talk to patients that sat home 
for a week having a heart attack and came in after the heart attack because of anxiety disorders related to fear of exposure to COVID. And we'll get to those data later, those data points later about how much that fear is displaced and inappropriate. But you should be able to debate that. You should be able to have a conversation nationally and not have that conversation removed from YouTube as YouTube did to Dr. Erickson's press conference that he did in California in which he simply posited that the data doesn't bear out lockdowns. But now that many states are beginning to open up, I'm telling a lot of my colleagues, welcome to the party. Colleagues, I'm seeing those that are now frustrated with the elements that want to continue lockdowns, that don't want to see any recurrence of increasing COVID illnesses and think that any spike is abnormal. When in fact, all we were talking about flattening the curve was preventing an overwhelming impact on our healthcare system. It's all about control. But let me get back quick to the Ramadan. So this hangriness, it's just, I think one of the elements that that I've, I've noticed this year is that Americans are frustrated, internally pent up frustration is driving the primary dominant emotion of our time right now. And it's, it's coinciding with some of what I see in my Muslim friends every year in Ramadan as they have a little pent up frustration as they deal with hunger and thirst and other things. And Americans now are dealing with hunger and thirst related to imposed suffocation of their businesses because of a containment strategy against the virus that nobody really knew what the right answers to were. Second, in this time of Ramadan, we look at some of the things you're finding a lot of a lot of folks being online. What a blessing. I have to tell you, what a blessing to be online. Why? Why am I saying that? Why is it a blessing to be online? Because all of a sudden I'm looking in my Twitter feed and other things. As I follow some of the Islamist Brotherhood leaders, I see uh, um, some of the mosques. For example, the Dar al-Hijra Mosque in Northern Virginia. You see Imam Shakir giving his khutbah, his, his sermon. I don't remember that always being online. And I watched it within 10 minutes. I started to feel ill. He was answering questions from people through Zoom. Not looking at the camera, by the way. Had a pretty sophisticated setup. Looking sideways into a monitor in which he looked at the questions and never, never once looked straight at the camera. And I don't know if that's just a technological idiocy of whoever set him up or if it's actually a method of disengagement, sort of lowering your gaze. Most of his questions were from women in his audience that were asking him things that he answered with unbelievably draconian responses that related to pretty prominent traditional interpretations, Salafi interpretations, misogynist interpretations of Sharia. So 
you watch this. I'm not going to get into details now. We could spend the whole program on some of the pronouncements he made. But as he gives fetwas, as he gives them, this is the guy who we exposed a year ago as giving an apologetic fetwa that female genital mutilation was permitted because women are born hypersexual. They need, they need, and pardon the 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 graphic nature here, but he said they need circumcision, clitoral reductions in order to inhibit their hypersexuality. Now there was national outcry, global outcry as his video was released on memory. And he apologized. The mosque apologized. But the Neanderthal is still teaching. The ideas were never reformed. Nobody addressed it. His videos are not always online. So it's a blessing now. We're seeing every communication. Too bad we don't have the resources to address it. Not only his. You see a, a New Mexico mosque that Ezra Nomani tweeted about this week. And it just, it, it is, if this wasn't so misogynist, you'd find it funny. But a post about, oh, we have to do social dis- physical distancing. So the limits and the numbers have gone down by 25%. So instead of 200 people, we're going to have 50 at the mosque. So down by 75%, I'm sorry. And they said 20 men and 5 women. Or up to 40 men and 10 women. Now, why the unequal numbers? Why? You can say, well, some say, well, only men have to go to the prayers. Women don't. It's uh, sunnah, which means uh, elective behavior for the women. It's it's fard or mandatory. Uh, that's why the ratios. All of these ratios and inequities are sort of showing on paper, showing on video, what actually has been happening on mosques every Friday, every day for years. But now it's there for everybody to see online. When we posted it, it was sort of the, I was called the the internal agent of anti-Islamic, anti-Islamophobia, or rather Islamophobia, because we posted it. Now they're posting it themselves and exposing these gender inequities, the gender apartheid, the, the misogyny, the anti-Semitism is there for all to see. It is so sad that we don't have the bazooka of information, of capacity to start pushing all this stuff out in a way to expose what they're putting online. I hope that doesn't change because eventually we will have the capacity to do that. But what a blessing that is. And last on this Ramadan topic, you'll find there's a debate. Churches and synagogues and others have gone online. They did. I've seen Passover seders online. I've seen... Uh, Sunday uh, uh, church gatherings. Now, some have tried to do drive-in type gathering just to sort of have that congregational spirit. But in Islam, I'm having a hard time finding any Zoom prayers. Some have done it to their credit, but others would say that you have to follow the technology of the prophet in the 7th century. When you pray, you pray side by side, It is a physical technology of prostration in front of God. 
of genuflection in front of God. You stand side by side with your feet next to each other. You bend down and then down to the ground with your head to the floor. And that has to be a physical prostration. Anything else is not a congregational prayer and does not count as Jumah or group prayer. Well, that's a pretty extreme interpretation. It seems to be the prevalent one. And we have the same debate about the moon sighting at the end of the Ramadan this month. Every year, despite the, despite the technology of astronauts in space and, and landing on the moon and all this kind of things, we can't use mathematics to say when the moon is going to end this month. We have to see it because the prophet did that. So some have said, oh, we'll bridge 7th century with 21st and we will calculate it, but we'll also see it and confirm it. Fine, I don't, nobody has a problem with confirmational obsessive behavior. That's fine. But those who do ignore the ability to tell exactly when our holidays are, it's why Muslims can never, we are so dysfunctional, we can't ever tell our communities and non-Muslims when our holidays are. Oh, we think Ramadan is going to be next Sunday. Now, it's become a little more confirmed. Islamic site in North America, and I was using harder data to do that, uh, to their credit. Uh, the, I call them the sort of Muslim Brotherhood 3.0 or Islamism 3.0, where they are neo-Salafist, or uh, not Salafist, neo-Islamist, where they start to modify things to try to dismiss the criticism of their ossification but having said that here's a glaring a glaring contradiction to those who say that you can't do zoom prayers the misogynists running our community have mosques in which women can't be on the same floor but they're in other rooms and they watch the prayer on a monitor. They hear the imam, not physically, but through a monitor. And they pray up and down the way we do. The men, in their superior nature, near the, near the imam as they see him. So listen, I understand the beauty of orthodoxy, the attempt to imitate the prophet. Obviously, we do that. I do that every day in certain things that I find that do not breach our moral guidelines of faith, of equality, of humanitarianism. But when they do breach those, we abandon those. That's what reform is all about. So what better to guide reform than to realize that since the way they treat women in mosques is apartheid nature, a separatist nature that treats them as second, third class citizens, maybe the monitor thing is, is, is baloney. They should be on the same floor. You can even argue whether they should be behind the men, maybe next to, not side by side, but separated, but Almost in the same way you have, when you have a wedding party at the church, you have on the one side the groom's side and the other the bride's side. So if you want male-female separation for whatever 
orthodox interpretation. It doesn't mean that if you disagree with that, you're expecting men and women to pray right next to each other, hip to hip. But there needs to be equality. It cannot be one is relegated to far inferiority in another room, in another planet. And then when you do do video video praying, then you say, oh, it's okay. Or it's not okay because the prophet didn't do it. So, So which is it? It's amazing to me the hypocrisy. Today the Salafis, Salafi means traditional interpretation, the way the friends of the Prophet acted, we must act today. So therefore, since they didn't have technology in the 7th century, remote prayer, we can't do congregational prayer. Okay, fine. You say, why can't you begin to modify these interpretations and say, fine, the ultimate type of prayer is physical prayer next to each other in a technology together in the same room, same building, same mosque. And the minimum of prayer is you pray alone. And then any groups, whatever size, is better than praying alone. That's sort of the dogma of prophetic interpretations from the hadith, etc. That group prayer is better than single, etc. Now, we've had these debates on should kids at school pray congregationally, and we said no, because then other faiths would have to do the same thing. Should prisoners pray congregationally maybe once a week, but not five times a day, because again, it invokes a, a favoritism towards Islam. So there are other things that may mitigate that. But then Zoom prayer in an era of physical distancing is better than praying alone, but maybe not as good as praying physically. So this type of open-mindedness to where you can interpret things in a more moderate way just seems to be completely absent. So call your, call your uh, if you're Muslim, call your communities on this kind of nonsense. If they're praying by Zoom and haven't thought twice of it, God bless them for their moderation. If they're not, call them on it and maybe it'll begin to abandon the way they treat women. Maybe it'll begin to abandon their hypocrisy and black and white interpretation of orthodoxy. Next, I want to give you a follow-up on the Scottsdale Community College treatment of Dr. Damask. My last podcast two weeks ago, we talked about the method in which he was treated, the way in which within 24 hours of a social media mob on Dr. Damask by simply one of his students snapshotting three questions and sending it around the planet, people saying that those questions offended Muslims, connecting the Prophet Muhammad with terrorism, connecting Islam with terrorism, and denigrating jihad, etc. We came to his defense. Many came to his defense. The president who wrote an apology letter within a day embarrassed the professor, forced him into hiding as the Islamist gangs from across the planet began to threaten him. And within four or five days after that, with our report public, with our pressure on some of the local reporters, the chancellor of the Board of Governors of the school system that Scottsdale Community College is part of, issued an apology, pretty much guaranteed this teacher that he his position is not threatened, said that the school's response was inappropriate, and some of the governing council members, including a, a Kathleen Wynne, defended him and I think pushed some of this action, and Steve Gonzalez the chancellor gave what I would think is one of the best mea culpas I've seen in some time. And that they would develop an academic freedom task force to begin to look at responses 
to issues of diversity, etc. So I have to tell you, look at our website at aifdemocracy.org for a timeline on what happened at Scottsdale Community College. It is a clinic. It happened in 10 days there. It was a complete turnaround. Dr. Damascus is no longer feeling abandoned by his school, but feeling rewarded for his stance on academic freedom. The Islamists now, their response, by the way, the reporter at the Arizona Central that initially basically pushed out a basically a rewrite of the Council on American-Islamic Relations talking points and the Islamist complaints, giving them far, far more validity than they ever deserved for their propaganda, responded to my criticism on Twitter, conducted an interview with me and then with Dr. Damask and got the other side of the story and printed a more balanced response. Now, again, I think it, it didn't get to some of the core issues of, of the way Islamists commit cultural terrorism and the way they respond to things. But fine. It was a sea change. A sea change within three or four days of the way Islamists were catered to. The way bullies were responded to. That they weren't appeased, but rather pushed back and said, hold on a second. At least process, due process needs to run its course. And this all evolved within 10 days. I would defy anyone to find any of the universities, community colleges, or otherwise that had Islamists begin to protest and then within 10 days had a complete 180 from the school. There are many that have had 180s from the school, thanks to many of the uh, organizations that exist to protect academic freedom. But often that takes three months, six months, 12 months, two years before the school comes to its senses and nobody remembers what happened. But this time, sort of the fast action response, we knew Doctor, uh, we knew the school here and Dr. Damask knew a lot of our contacts, had been at our presentations at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and he realized that there are ways to not be critical of all Islam but to teach what the militants believe about their faith as being a reality, the truth of what they believe. The ultimate hypocrisy, folks, is this week... Imran Siddiqui, the head of the Council for American Islamist Radicalization, as I like to call them, or the Council on American Islamic Relations, as they call themselves, because of how embarrassed he and his organization were by augmenting the blatherings of radical Islamists globally and their cultural terrorism upon a school and a teacher, and the work of comedians and other gangs that they augmented as legitimate criticisms of a, of a teacher. Their response was, oh, can you believe how wrapped around the axle the Islamophobia industry was about a junior college and a couple questions from a teacher? That's their response. Can you believe how they lost their SH, boom, because of questions? That's what, the, that's what the Islamic activist group said after they were embarrassed. So wait a minute. The initial losing of their mind was the Islamists who then rained hell on the school and the, and the, and the professor. So when that turns around because a protective industry, a protective community, of those who want academic freedom, those who believe in free speech and constitutionalism and Americanism, Whatever that industry is, that's called the American people. 
So when the American people come to defend freedom, then that becomes a hyperbolic response of Islamophobia. That's somebody who's trying to save face and was completely embarrassed. Chalk one up for the good guys, for the good folks, people. I'll give you more on this story if it evolves at all, but it's headed in the right direction. We have to give uh, a tip of the hat to FIRE, an organization that protects academic freedom. They sent a fantastic letter to the school which uh, uh, posed the legal challenges that may arise and also put the fear of the truth into the school's leadership, so I'm sure that had an impact. And again, thanks to all the others that also reported on the academic freedom issues in this. Next, I want to end talking about sort of the what's happening to science. You know, I went into medicine for two major reasons. One was the coveted, the, the unbelievable honor of the personal relationship between a doctor and a patient. It was something that I just, I thought, wow, to be able to get paid daily to have that bond of care and be able to direct science and my skill set to that and help them through the toughest situations of health was an honor I wanted to be a part of. And the fact, secondly, was that it was based not simply on opinion, but on rigorous science. In a nation that leads investment and research and development and develop through and I, as I gravitated towards internal medicine because of its academia, and if you look at William Osler, the father of medicine, of internal medicine in the early 20th century, originally Canadian, but uh, established the Department of Medicine at Johns Hopkins, and what internal medicine was, he taught, as did every one of his, follow- his students and, and those who followed him, that there needs to be rigor not only scientific method, but there needs to be the ability to defend clearly, scientifically, and present with doubt that it's not only what you know, but the most critical thing for a doctor is to know what you do not know. Because that's how you avoid getting in trouble and committing acts of malpractice. To know what you don't know is key. The other thing is that usually things have a unifying diagnosis. And he said you treat the patient, not the disease. All these principles evolved from a not only Oslerian, Dr. Osler's tradition, Oslerian tradition, but also from a rigorous, rigorous adherence to scientific inquiry, scientific rigor, and intellectual honesty. Now you can talk about the general abuse of science by politicians and climate change is one of the things that comes to mind on either side of the equation on that one. There's demagoguery of of science. But I, I can't tell you in my lifetime I've ever seen the manipulation of medical science by, let's say both sides here, but for the most part those that wanted lockdowns. And I say manipulation in that as a physician, I trained at Bethesda Naval Hospital and 
which uh, is is not only of you know a, a, what I feel is an extraordinarily high caliber training program, but brought with it a rigor of the Socratic method of constantly constantly pushing our students, our residents, and training on proving their points, knowing their cases, being able to prioritize things appropriately, and if they can't, insisting that they come back soon with the right answers, with the reasoned answers, not just from their hip, but from academic research and academic understanding. And thus you have the morning rounds, the the uh, the, the classic thing that now has been dramatized on TV and other things where you see professors pushing the students and residents and fellows on the appropriate approach to medical inquiry. And then the classic is House, the program where the doctor, now he often knows it from the beginning, it makes it more more uh, dramatic, but uh, most of the time the reality is we don't know what the, what the case diagnosis is from the beginning. And our guesses, contrary to the drama of Hollywood, are not often correct. We miss things no matter how brilliant we are, but that's part of medicine. But now, within a few weeks of the lockdown, if you did not agree with the public health officer in your state or with the team of the coronavirus task force in your state or in the federal government, that somehow you were not only a denier, your opinions needed to be removed from social media, and you were a danger. Now, nobody's to say that you can't criticize those ideas, that we couldn't have had academic rigor and debate, but the method of of suppressing disagreeing ideas. Look back at the time in which the lockdown started the second week of March, And then when you started to see any type of disagreement with it, and we get it, people were doing it. It's like when we heard the launch of whatever it might be into war, Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever it might be, a position was done by the government and then people started to disagree. But I've never seen the method in which medical science was locked down, locked down on disagreement. And now, as I said earlier, welcome to the party. There are many, be it conservatives, liberal, those who question government, are now starting to say the same thing as, why are there any essential businesses? What does that word essential mean? Open society. Let people, yes, they should be socially distant, but they shouldn't be overly concerned about risk, litigation, and other things because they decided to open their business and make an income for their family. We're seeing hairdressers in Texas and elsewhere imprisoned for days because they wouldn't apologize to government because they wanted to get back to business and make some money so they could feed their family. That's un-American. And I say welcome to the party because now people 
many, many more are starting to question this. And it's no longer simply if you criticize it, you're told you're a conspiracy theorist. Now it's you're a defender of the American Constitution. Well, many of us, I'm sorry, we're saying this in April. I did agree with the lockdowns for two to three weeks, max four weeks, which got us into middle of April. But then I did not understand the, as we started to look at the initial data, as we do in medicine, we look at our tests, we keep testing and retesting, and then we make new recommendations to the patients. And my new recommendation, my new sense to my own business, to my family, and to my country, was that I did not understand why we were locked down further than four weeks. The data didn't make sense to me. The data coming in from Sweden, from other countries, uh, countries did not make any sense. And initially, I have to tell you, it was a bit of a muted response from me because you didn't want to be associated with folks that they were sort of uh, saying were on the conspiratorial fringe. And now you have uh, foreign sympathizers like the Atlantic magazine that for a long time has been compromised by every every government globally from the Saudis to the Chinese now is starting to have a whole section on conspiracy theorists and how it all connects to right-wing radicals, etc., as they call them. Now, most people may not even read The Atlantic, but bottom line is this is where the establishment is going on those who dissent and those who disagree. They initially demonize them as much as possible, and then later when, it, when some of the ideas become conventional wisdom and other people get to the party, they're all looked upon as that kind of radical. And I'm sorry, as a doctor from the beginning, I was asking this as, as a, these questions about the validity of lockdown and the fact that we still need to get herd immunity, the fact that there's still going to need to be infections because we do not have a vaccine and that we're not going to keep America locked down forever and the death rates don't even pose even close to the same concerns that we see what initially justified the lockdown. I want to end with a piece from Dan Horowitz, a conservative review that came out on May 14th. He said, one chart exposes the lie behind universal lockdowns. So if he asks at the beginning, he says, Dan asks, what is the true infection fatality rate of COVID-19 broken down by age and health status? Simple question from which the CDC should have a clear answer. But yet, our own government hasn't done that. The Netherlands did. They showed age groups by 10 years, 10 to, sorry, 20 to 30, 30 to 40, 40 to 50, 50 to 60, 60 to 70 and the percent that were mild or asymptomatic. And pretty much at the highest age group, it was 93% mild or asymptomatic. At the lowest age group, it was 97%. Chance of hospitalization for a 20 to 30-year-old was 0.2%. For a 60-year-old or or older, it was 3.4%. Chance of ICU admission was 1.4% for the oldest and 0.03% for the youngest. Chance of death, 0.0038% for the youngest, 0.5% for the 
for the oldest group. Per population death, youngest rate, 26,000. One per 26,000 for the oldest, one per 200 of those infected. And remember, don't confuse case numbers with infection, which means illness related to it. So, Dan summarizes that they were able to determine that 3% of the population were infected and were therefore able to divide the numerator by those who died and the denominator by those who were likely infected and break out the infection fatality rate by age group. So take a look at his report at Conservative Review. Take a look at that analysis. And he says, while the Netherlands is an entirely different country, it has actually experienced a 30% higher death rate per capita than the United States. So the numbers are likely not any higher here for those under 70, especially because the macro serology testing showed 0.2% fatality rate. And that's grossly distorted by the death rate of those over 80 as well as what we are seeing in prisons and ships and younger populations, seems to harmonize with this data. Brand new study from France also shows similar estimates fatality rates, at least for those under 60. They did another analysis a couple weeks later, more recently, and it came up with the exact same chances of death. As you can see, the death rate doesn't even climb above 0.1% until you reach over 70, with a steep and dangerous growth of risk over 75 and 80. And so the question is, why hasn't our government put out a similar chart? How many Americans even know that children have near zero threat and anyone under 60 has next to no risk of dying from the virus? And yet we hear about the cases in which some of them did, but those are still case studies. That's not aggregate academic medical data. The WHO wrongly pegged the overall death rate for those ages at 3 to 3.4%. So consequently... Dan summarizes the best. He said, moreover, roughly half of all deaths outside New York were in nursing homes. So if you actually took the numerator of COVID-19 deaths, which I calculated very liberally, and limited them to the risk of those outside the New York City area and outside nursing homes, what would the fatality rate be? Likely much lower. Even for those with underlying conditions, much less those without them. So consequently, we destroyed our entire country, and sacked the Constitution all for a very narrow and specific problem that required a precise and balanced approach. Yet two months into the mistake, our government won't even put the simple math demonstrating this obvious point. As one numerator so aptly, as one commentator so aptly observed, homogenous intervention in the face of heterogeneous risk is just cruelty passed off as equality. Amen. I cannot summarize it better. Cruelty passed off as equality. And who's going to talk about that? What's going to be the reassessment of those actions? It's time to revisit that. 
And ladies and gentlemen, that's what programs like this are all about on Reform This. Please find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. Follow me on Twitter handle for this program, Reform This Radio. God bless you all. We'll see you next week on the Blaze Podcast Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.